Welcome to The X-Files, a special edition podcast from Full Prefrontal. We love stories because they take us to the secret hidden places where we store the essence of real living. Only through stories do we witness extraordinary moments of human resilience. In these special edition episodes, we hear the stories of former clients, learning about their gifts, challenges, aspirations, letdowns, and inner activism. The clients presented in The X-Files have helped Sucheta become a better listener, observer, problem solver, and above all, a caring clinician. She hopes these stories will melt your heart and help you see executive function in a new light. And now, here is our host, Sucheta Kamath. All right, welcome back to Full Prefrontal. In fact, a special edition of Full Prefrontal, one of our great X-Files conversations. Here on the show, we are exposing the mysteries of executive function. And as always, I am here with our host, Sucheta Kamath. Good morning, my friend. I so enjoy these X-Files conversations. Good morning, Todd. It's great to be with you. And today it's a special day because I get to speak with one of my favorite parents. And today I thought we will talk about a different perspective on executive function, ADHD. We have had uh, clients of mine on previous X-File episodes, but I thought this time, why not have a parent? And so this is a delightful parent I have had a chance to work with. I saw two of her children, both of her children, and during their elementary and middle school years, And but I know them and have been keeping track of their journey into their young adulthood. So can't wait to welcome Violet. Violet, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sucheta. Good to hear from you. And listeners, just know Violet is not her real name, and we will be referring to her children as, Violet, what should we call your kids? Thing one and thing two. By the way, that is so classic of Violet, and that's why I love her so much, and I can't wait to start this conversation. So, Violet, let's start with this. I have talked to you a lot about your your journey as you try to raise your beautiful children who were diagnosed with ADHD, but for starters, how were you your own executive function skills as a child, how was your attention, your ability to make friends, engage in play, handle studies, and handle setbacks? How were you as a child? Well, you have to remember the context of my youth, which is many, many years ago. I had my children very late in life, in my 40s. So back when I was a child, there was really no reference to ADD and ADHD. I remember growing up in the second grade, there was a boy who now would be obviously ADHD. He couldn't sit still in his chair. He was very, very bright. He squirmed. He made noise. He was great fun. And the second grade teacher used to beat him every single day, trying to get him to submit and behave in the classroom. Oh, my goodness. So that's the climate of my growing up. It was also a time of the self-fulfilling prophecy. I was cute. I was clean. I was middle class. And so I was going to be successful in grammar school. I remember my mother talking about we didn't have kindergarten back then. And after the first grade, my mom showed me a book and said, here, sweetheart, come read with me. And I couldn't do it. So that summer, over the summer, she took the newspaper and sat down and taught me how to read. I was very teachable, but the teacher had no idea I couldn't read. They would 
used the same Dick and Jane books, and I would listen, and I would hear it, and then I would parrot it right back with such great expression. They thought I was doing a good job. So it started very early, but Mm. it was not identified. Got it. So you're describing some challenges in reading, and also you're referring to your profile. Girls with ADHD tend to present differently than boys do. You were not hyperactive. You're not troublemaker. You also were very cooperative. So unlike the boy that uh, got beat up by the teacher, you got a lot of attention, but not the right approach, right? Correct. But once I learned to read, I took off. I never really had any identifiable learning differences. Got through grammar school, had friends. Socially, things changed in middle school, seventh and eighth grades. And for some reason unknown to me at the time, I was bullied. And so social issues came from that. I was never after that a good student, never a bad student. I was able to keep up just by being there. So I made A's and B's just by virtue of who I was. And always, though, in the back of my mind, there was an element of, now, why didn't I do my homework? Or why hadn't I studied? Or why didn't I do better? All the while, from middle school to to diagnosis was an element of, what is it about me that I feel like I need to self-defeat? So there's so many things, and I don't want to spend all this time on you, but I also want our listeners who are parents to hear this connection. And I see this in my practice all the time, that parents often say to me that I used to be this kid, but look at me how successful I have become. And I like to remind them that they may not be fully remembering the story quite well, or they had something in their environment that worked. But can we quickly talk about your middle school years? And you said you were bullied and that had a great impact. Was that something to do with your reading the social situations? Was that tied up with your ADHD somehow? At the time, I had no idea. But in retrospect, I would have to say yes. I thought I was just like the other kids. I had always been like the other kids until I guess we hit puberty and they perceived me differently. I did not perceive myself differently and I didn't perceive myself behaving differently from them in the situations. Do you have an example for us? In what forms were you bullied and how did that shut you down or change the trajectory of your own success? I don't really have any specific examples. It was a long, long time ago. And I can remember that the other girls that had been in my little clique, we all grew up together. Our parents were close together. They would just like turn their back and walk away when I walked up. And I remember the first time it happened. And I remembered I always had a a rather large vocabulary and they made fun of that and you know, it, there was just a, a whole bunch of stuff that I really don't remember well enough at this point. So, Violet, sounds like all preteens and teenagers go through this angst stuff, trying to adjust uh, to the changes of life. And everybody feels so different and different, not in a positive way. So somehow that you were not spared from that, but definitely sounds like you were not able to make meaning of uh, what that could be that's causing a lot of social rift. So let's continue and talk about your journey. When you and your husband got together, did you two share any characteristics 
by then you were struggling with symptoms of ADHD, but were you diagnosed? And does your husband have the same diagnosis? Do you mind sharing with our listeners? Oh, sure. I made it through high school and college and law school all by the skin of my teeth and moved forward and didn't meet my husband till I was 40 years old. By then, I had come up with a lifestyle that didn't preempt, certainly, but supported the the ADHD symptoms. Always in the back of my head was the, now, why do I shoot myself in the foot again? Even to the point that I would go, well, gee, you know, I'll die a happy woman if I can ever just figure that out. When I met my husband, he was somewhat of a bad boy, and I was drawn to that. He's very dear, sweet, and wonderful. But at the time, I didn't notice the ADHD in him. Again, I was not really that familiar with the term. It was not until we had thing one diagnosed that each of us found out. We went to have the conference after she was tested, and we were sitting there with the psychologist, and she says, so ADHD is generally or can be genetic. And so which one of you has it? I point at him. He points at me and she goes, bing, bing, you're both right. <laughs> so that's kind of how we, we figured it out. So tell us a little bit more about that household where there are four people with ADHD. What does that look like? Chaos. Yeah, love to love for you to explain both the the gift and the chaos. And I think this is the harmony in chaos is a dream, but it's really hard when the chaos sometimes makes things unmanageable. So, do you mind giving us some examples of what that chaos looked like? Not at all. I was an established attorney. I had lived by myself for many years, had my house in order, and my husband and I got married, moved in together, and. He took care of as much as I took care of, and it, it was all in order. Then we had children, and I remember if it hadn't been for him, my children probably would have starved to death because I can't be rigidly structured enough to fix three meals a day. That's just not in, in who I am. I would not have known it until I had children. I remember a time that they were in grammar school, or my thing one was, thing one was, and all the uniforms, all the laundry got done every week. But if they wanted something to wear, they'd have to go dig through the the mountain on my dining table where my husband <laughs> would wash and throw everything clean onto the dining table. And God forbid if it needed to be ironed. There was one time my playroom was such a mess with all the kids' toys that uh my daughter's ballet slippers were in there. She missed her dance class because we couldn't find her ballet shoes that day. One oh, day, wow. yeah, one day <laughs> in preschool, she gets out of the car. She doesn't have on her shoes. Thing one, where are your shoes? Gee, mom, I don't know. I had left them at the house. We had to go home and get the shoes. So there were a lot of, a lot of interesting times. Of course, as children, they didn't know any better. They thought that's how people live. Yes. Oh, my goodness. You know, as you uh, share these stories, I think the regular family life itself is chaotic because we are trying to juggle jobs, uh, home life. And now we don't even have the support that we used to when the grandparents were in town or next door neighbors. So when you have ADHD and both parents do, life becomes even more hectic. So one of the things that you said I want to visit back is this idea that 
in spite of your ADHD, as an adult, you had somehow managed and streamlined life. Then you added one more person and two of you kept it decently well. But having two children, what changed in terms of the demands on your organization, demands on your attention and demands on your routinized life? In what ways did it change so dramatically, in your opinion? Every way possible. The the workload itself, when you introduce a third person, the workload doesn't become an extra third. When it's a tiny little infant, it becomes just so overwhelming and you don't have the sleep. And I think that's true with every parent. Only as they mature, they learn how to do like, oh, go pick up your toys. And we never had that kind of structure. So it became more and more and more. The demands were more and Mm. I never met them. Got it. Got it. And sounds like in order to also demand certain or have certain explicit uh, instructions, I remember from our sessions when we first reviewed rules and you were quite flabbergasted at what rules? <laughs> um, <laughs> what, do we need to have rules? Can uh, I don't want to stifle their imagination and creativity. So there was a lot of resistance from you and your kids with the notion of organization. And it was juxtaposed as if it destroys creativity. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. But let's now ta- uh, start talking about your kids. So you have older girl and younger boy, and now they're not neither girl or a boy, but they're a young woman and a young man. So tell us a little bit about uh, their profile. In what ways their problems presented when they were younger? And how did the uh, problems change through time? And how did they become academically more and more unmanageable? My daughter obviously came first, and she's two years older than her brother. When she was two years old, I remember going to uh, an end-of-the-year party or some kind of party at her preschool, all the moms, all the kids, and the room is loud, and it's a little bit overwhelming, but the kids run around, and they have fun, and they do their crafts with their mom, and they're screaming, and they're eating their cake and getting it all over them, and I actually have a photograph of my beautiful little girl just sitting there totally zoned out, and she's two years old Mm. at the time. And I know for a fact that this is not the way that the other kids are acting. So it started early with us. And of course, there are many other examples. But basically, when she graduated from pre-K, her four-year-old class teacher said, look, I am not an expert, far be it for me to diagnose. But if I had to guess, you're going to down the road have some maybe auditory processing or ADHD something. And of course, she didn't diagnose it, but she threw out some terms. She says, don't want to scare you, but be on the lookout in case it happens. And so I went then. And of course, they don't test four-year-olds, but I had a modicum of little bit of testing and Mm. they decided it was auditory processing. So I got with a speech pathologist and audiologist and she started working with my daughter, thing one, and they had a great time, but no progress was made because there was no auditory issue. Hmm. But it did start young with her. With thing two, I was already a couple or three years down the path and had read and learned and talked to people. It was pretty new back then even. 
ADHD was just coming to the forefront when my kids went through the pipeline. There's a lot more now, yes. a lot more resources, a lot more information that parents have. So I kind of had to pioneer my own way. You were probably the first person in town and at the time, the only one doing executive function, I'll call it coaching. But anyway, so when thing two came along, I remember from almost from birth, he did not nap more than 15 minutes. And if he took a nap, he'd be up till 11 o'clock and I'd just be tearful. So I, I knew I knew what was coming with him. So both of them presented really, really early. And I guess given the timing, I was very fortunate to have mm. figured it out. So Violet, what's striking about your stories that you're sharing with us that you were very perceptive, even as um, thing one, so to speak, was uh, two years old and at a birthday party, she was zoned out. And that's very perceptive of you. And the actions you took were so timely. And yet the respite didn't come because uh, the effects of ADHD are chronic, but also the complexity and the range of challenges that you all were experiencing together needed to change. I mean, everybody's ADD needed to uh, be managed, right? And was it managed at that time? No. Can you share with us, what was the point of resistance there? Why was it so hard to get four people's ADHD in control? Well, again, I think it was not our willingness because we were more than willing to do what it took. It's just that it takes so much. It's an ongoing process and minute by minute. Even when you get it managed at one point, it changes a month later. But also at that point in time, there was no way to really manage it. We couldn't find the right school. The right school didn't exist. There were elements in several different schools that we needed, but other elements fell short. And that persisted through high school. And that's a really critical thing that I think people need to really hear carefully that, yes, because ADHD doesn't present in isolation, there are a lot of complex issues that co-present. And there are some schools who address some parts, but not all. And of course, as we have gotten a better understanding of ADHD and neuroscience, and it has a positively influenced education, we are seeing a lot of change. But I bet that change was not available at your time. And secondly, as you pointed out, another important point, which is takes so much out of you <laughs> to uh, keep up with it. And I like to compare ADHD management to uh, having a toilet paper in the bathroom. You know, <laughs> more you use it, less you have it. So one day comes, you need to replenish it. And people with ADHD forget to replenish things. So yes, it you know, organization, you begin, you manage and create meals, and then you get bored. You have to get back on that horse. You create an organization, then you don't follow up. You need to get back on the horse, you know? So a lot of times parents and children just do not get back on the horse in a timely way. But transitions are hard. Getting back on the horse is next to impossible for thing two. But I had the luxury of saying, okay, I'm going to stay home. I'm not going to work. I'm going to be here with my children. My husband, my very biggest gift in the world was able to do the same. And we parented together. Like I said, we were in our 40s when this litter was born. And we 
devoted ourselves to them. We very deliberately chose to have them and how to rear them. And it was at a point in our lives that we had the luxury of devoting ourselves to them. So when I melted down, when I couldn't do, he picked up the slack and it got done. It was, again, a chaotic environment, but we didn't know it. And we had lots of fun and it got done. The kids did not die of starvation. (laughs) Yes, and did not starve of love. So that was very remarkable. So let's talk about this idea of what were the ADHD-related symptoms that have interfered in your children's education? Uh, Okay, starting in kindergarten. Thing one, of course, we got her medicated and we got, got her into a private school. But the private school was, and I don't know if you want to put this in the, the recording or not, but Jewish day school. And it had a dual curriculum. In other words, half a day in Hebrew and half a day in English. She was totally lost, totally lost. And we got tutors and lots of support. But she was never one to respond well to the meds. She still was very unfocused and very zoned out. I remember the first day of kindergarten, they were given homework. But in this particular school, they decided that homework every night just to give structure was was their protocol. So the first night she had homework and she got a sheet that had several different pictures drawn on it. And each picture had a perforated line around it, a, a little perforated box. And at the bottom was an, a little symbol for scissors. And anybody would take for granted that that means cut each of the pictures out. Thing one didn't have a clue what to do. So I said, well, look, here's the scissors and here's the box. So I came in later and probably an hour later, and she was still very copiously cutting out these pictures, which was great, except she didn't follow the lines. She was very creative and curvy and making her own little creations with the scissors. And that's kind of a (laughs) It's kind of a knee-jerk, uh-oh, what do I do? This is such a powerful example. Thank you, Violet, for sharing because it, it captures so many elements of executive function. And that's why you know ADHD is not a just attention deficit. It's an executive function deficit disorder. And so the line, the perforated line, a line, dotted line, was suggestion that you cut here. And if you followed those rules, then cutting would be simpler and timely and efficient. But if she was being creative, which is amazing, but she was putting more effort in a task that did not need that kind of effort. And so this mismatch of effort can often lead to under effort and over effort or obsessing or not putting enough, uh, giving enough attention. And I see that often and knowing your thing one you know, that we spend a lot of time on developing that inferencing from the implicit. What does the world want you to do where the instructions are not clear? So thank you for sharing that. As she progressed, how did this translate into having difficulties understanding larger set of expectations when she grew up? Well, grammar school, we went through about three or four different schools. After that, it was pretty clear that we weren't going to stay there very much longer. And she lasted a couple of years with a wonderful tutor and wonderful teachers who supported her and the tutor, you and the doctors. 
and the psychologists. And I, I built a whole team. I saw my role as, okay, mom advocate. And as a lawyer, I guess that's my soul. And I just went after it. But then we put her that's in, great. then we put her in a learning, an LD program. And she doesn't, other than her executive issues, she doesn't have any specific learning disabilities that have been diagnosed. So she very cleverly manipulated the teachers. It was, well, I can't do this. And the teachers would say, okay, well, I'll do it for you later, or I'll help you later. And so she was learning a learned inability. And so you that, mean, was she enabled by the yes. world around her? Yes. I see. I see. So I figured that out and just kept looking for schools. And this one was good at this and that one was good at that. But there was not one. And I remembered it was almost tragic while I was looking at schools. I was led down a path to look at, at schools. And I'm not going to give any names, but there was one that had children who were clearly physically, mentally disabled, and someone suggested, oh, this might be a, a match for thing one. And I'm thinking, you don't know my child. You cannot group her into this. There's no way I'm going to let her think that's what she was. Yeah. So that was a big struggle. She's never, ever been academic. She doesn't like it. She doesn't do it well. She never has. And once that just came to a head, it was a matter of getting her through the best way that she could, which we did. With my background, I wanted her to have a four-year college degree. That was important. She got out of high school and, Mommy, I hate school. I don't want to go to school. Don't make me go to school. So I said, okay, well, take some time and think about it. And she took time and she worked. And she has an incredible work ethic. She functions beautifully in a non-academic setting. But again, I think it was it was me pushing her in the wrong direction, trying to pound that little square peg into a round hole. I said, just go to junior college and see how it works. That'll be easy. And she came back. She said, Mom, just like high school, I hate it. The whole time <laughs> she had been saying, I want to go to SCAD. I want to go to SCAD. So now she's in SCAD and she has sprouted wings She's like a little duck to water. It's it's the fit. If I had listened to her sooner, she would have flourished earlier. So here you are, experienced parent in ADHD, with a spouse with ADHD, the household of ADHD. You kind of know certain limitations that are cornerstone of ADHD and executive function. What were some of the internal struggles that you couldn't keep aside when it came to alternative path of education and learning or allowing, not allowing, but kind of seeing that there's another, several other ways to succeed in life. I mean, it's so impressive. I know what she's doing now and, and that her work ethic always was so evident in her, her diligence, her desire to do well was so evident, but it's hard, isn't it? That, that the formal years of education somehow or formal education itself makes us believe that it's the right path. What were your internal struggles as a family, uh, psychological struggles, uh, coming to terms with how to define success for your children? I think that struggle was specific to me. 
it just, I guess it was an ego or an attitude. I always believed, especially in today's climate, that a four-year degree is necessary no matter what you do. Thing two wants to be a musician. And he graduated high school early. He was accepted into a college with, on an, in an honors engineering program. So we had the conversation, what do you want to do? And he says, music. I said, well, honey, that's great, but what's plan B? And he says, I don't know, mom, I think maybe astrophysics or uh, aerospace engineering. So, so I go, well, that's just a great plan B. Why don't we start there <laughs> with plan B? <laughs> you know, I appreciate your candor and saying it was your ego and your attitude. So what about these two career paths of formal education when it didn't feel good in their hearts that, uh, that you kept attaching yourself to? Can you dive a little bit deeper? Because I see it's not your, your own struggle. I see this with every family that I work with, and I do not mean to exaggerate, primarily because it's so confusing to see potential. Their smarts and their intelligence and their capabilities that come through shine like this beams of light that parents feel that maybe they can take a, a stab at formal career path. But I'm sure you have some, uh, you have thought a lot about this. Oh, yeah. Well, the thing too, we thought was all set on plan B and started school. And again, just what and where he needed to be wasn't what he needed to be. And after a couple of years of it was just a miserable human being. We kind of are just at this juncture now and sat down and finally he said, mom, I've got to study music. Fine, study music. It makes you happy. We'll deal with it. But the compromise was study music at a four-year college. So that was hard to find because the production end of music is not really in a lot of the four-year colleges, but we found it and we're going to make that work. It's just, uh, I feel like for somebody like him, if you don't, and this is a, a cultural thing, this is our society. If you don't have a college degree, then you're not prepared for later, whatever happens. And that's my job as his parent to say, well, You've got to be prepared because I'm not always going to be here. But you you felt somehow the college degree might do that? I still think it does. You never know what's down the pike for him. Gotcha. And I want that to be established. That's just back when my parents were were born, they were the depression babies, the World War II heroes. And at their when they came along. It was adequate to have a high school graduation. Now, I think you're not looked at seriously unless you have a college education. With thing one, we got very fortunate in that SCAD is a very prestigious institution, and it is a four-year institution, and people respect it. But thing two was a little bit different because he can do the academic component. Thing one is really not prepared for that level of academics. Thing two can be with the right structure, he can be. And I think it's necessary for him, especially in an industry like music. 
So going back to this idea, though, uh, it sounds like you you are certainly finding it. It's a concern of yours that the pro- career paths they might choose may not be respectable, and that may create a lot of future barriers for them to live life or even financially and socially viable lives. Is that what worries you the most? No, it has nothing to do with respectability so much as preparation. I feel like thing one, even if she doesn't do what she's preparing for now, she has a foundation and believe it or not, the savvy to morph into what she needs to do. And in the job market, people will take her seriously. Thing two needs to have that level of being able to be in ta- to be taken seriously. What I'm hearing from you, and I appreciate so much, is your deep desire to provide your children with the foundation that comes from higher education, that teaches you how to reflect, how to do critical thinking, how to make a business plan, how to have the formality in place. And then the second issue that you're pointing out is this idea that because people will take them seriously, what does that actually mean to you? I'm assuming is that uh, they have received the training uh, that will make them follow up with the commitment they're about to make, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think the job market, they expect a proven track record. I also think, though, that people with ADHD and ADD, it's not what they can do or what they know, it's how. It's actually the how to do it. And I think that it's my job as a parent not to depend on their entrepreneurial ability to take over. Again, I'm an older parent. I'm not going to be here forever to guide my children. I have to give them up front as much as I can. And I'm fortunate in that thing two does like school and can do school. There are a lot of aspects and components of independent living that need to be taught. How do you this and how do you that? But that's part of my job as his parent anyway. And academia is a good setting to learn that. Yeah, we really understood your philosophy. I think I I feel it makes sense. And you have given people a perspective about this long journey of becoming parent mentor. And uh, it's so essential because, yes, I always speak to parents about becoming the advocates for their children, uh, not the friends that your children can form friendship, but they need advocates. So as we come to an end, do you mind talking about the professional help that you sought out in our work when we did the work together? What was, what are some of the things that stood out for you that actually were at the heart of developing executive function? As far as your practice? Yeah, the work we did. I remember Kathy. We all hated her. (laughs) We did, didn't we? (laughs) I had to buy my children a buzzer. (laughs) But I think it goes well beyond the executive functioning games and skill building. For me, it was more about the team. My children are certainly not unique in their ADD and ADHD, but they're unique in that they're mine. And they're unique in that um, we all have that hefty dose of it. And it's a it's an interesting place to be. So my appreciation of what you offer comes more from a parenting standpoint, from a coaching standpoint. 
you helped us organize the home. You helped me know the how, how to do. And I'm a great advocate, and I still advocate for my children. Just last semester, I had to go back down to the school. Some of the accommodations my son wanted were denied, and we had to go back and fight for them. One thing you taught me was this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's not going away. So take your time, catch your breath, and just keep plugging. You taught me about making lists and how to get things done. I mean, just basic things that most parents understand. And enforcing it and seeing it and sticking to it, isn't it? That's so hard, the process. (laughs) But it's much harder if you don't have the how piece. Again, as far as, as ADHD people go, I think that, well, Thing 2's music teacher, uh, I asked him, how does Thing 2 break into such an industry? And he says, well, you just get out there and do it. And I, I said to him, you can't just do it. We need to know how. We need more of a roadmap. And that's what you provided. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. From my point of view, one of the things that was critical in managing the ADHD of your children was the bigger picture of ADHD, which is the insight. Working individually with your kids, the focus was helping them understand the nature of their own abilities and inabilities in the context where they were performing. The very big issue, particularly your thing too, we were working on is uh, the emotional adjustment frustrations, impatience that one feels when you have what it takes, but you just don't know how to get it out. And that requires a lot of managing, taking a breath and and re-looking at the problem with a attitude of what are the knowns, what are the unknowns. We worked a lot on that. And what's so striking, I know you took out the time, unlike a lot of parents, you wanted to learn parenting strategies. So you took the initiative. We worked uh, together on those parenting skills, I had come to your, I came to your house as well, which is not what what I commonly do. Um, And I did go to schools to observe or talk to the teachers. But yeah, I think the team approach, the cohesive collaborative approach is really essential because uh, my experience of having done this for 20 years is you're not fixing a child. You're not doing something at or to the child. You are building a life for a child, an inner life where he can function and thrive and allow all these amazing gifts that the child has to shine. But there are always some barriers that don't let that happen. So that was such a, I I miss seeing you, honestly, because it was so much fun. (laughs) It was. We'll We'll have to meet for coffee. We really do. So that brings me to the end of our conversation. Are there any closing thoughts that you want to share with our listeners regarding what is, uh, how, in what ways you, you, you are a story of hopefulness, but any message, parting message you want to give to our listeners? If you don't mind, just a couple of quick words. We were at a bar mitzvah one time and thing two was sitting there with this little game boy, very discreet because he had to sit still and he had to have some kind of fidget spinner, which hadn't been in- invented yet. So he was playing with his Game Boy, and a very prominent attorney in town was sitting right behind us, and he reached over and tapped Thing 2 on the shoulder, and he said, so you're ADHD too, huh? And Thing 2 almost swallowed (laughs) his tongue. He goes, yes, sir. Yeah, that's right. 
And the man says, well, you know, me too. Every morning I get up, I take my little blue pill and people look at it as a disability. But you know what? It is so such a gift. We are so much better than they are. We can do so many things at one time and they got to do one at a time. And that that stuck with <laughs> that perspective of That's this a is story. a gift was just a, a real a real help. And the other thing is you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Let your child grow down their path. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, thank you for your wisdom. You are really a thoughtful and dedicated mom. And I love thing one and thing two and who they have become as young people. Can't wait to see them uh, very soon. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Sucheta, thank you. I so enjoyed it. All right. Fun conversation. It's all the time we have for today. If you know of someone who might benefit from listening to today's episode, we would be grateful if you would kindly forward it to them. So on behalf of our host, Sucheta Kamath, today's guest, Miss Violet, and all of us at Cerebral Matters, thanks for listening today. And we'll look forward to seeing you again right here next week on Full Prefrontal. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive functions. To contact our host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive functions, visit her website at CerebralMatters.com. That's CerebralMatters.com. Tune in next week for the next informative episode of Full Prefrontal.